worry about finances when we were overseas and our kids were able to go to one of the best schools that there was anywhere in the world, I think. And that was because you gave to Global Advance. So this morning, I'd like to give you just a, sort of a panoramic view of our almost 40 years on the mission field. Jesus is the light of the world. And we had the privilege of going to Peru as our first assignment. Peru at that point was just beginning an awakening, an awakening of who Jesus really is. It's uh, known to be a Catholic country, and but most people knew Jesus as that man on the cross or a baby in the virgin's arms, but they didn't know him as their personal savior. And that is so important. And I just want to give you from our last assignment in Spain, just how important it is that they know that Jesus can be a personal savior. I was walking outside the church that we were pastoring on the coast of the Mediterranean in Campello, Spain, and a lady was begging. She was a well-dressed, upper-middle-class looking woman, but she was pushing a shopping cart and obviously had emotional issues. And she was had her hand out, and I gave her some money, and I said, God bless you. And she threw the money back at me, spit in my face, and said, I don't want to hear anything about God or Jesus. I knew that woman had been hurt. She didn't know who Jesus really was. Her image of Jesus was not the right kind of image. So how did we get to Spain, which is a very, very dark country? Less than 1% of the population is evangelical, has really come to know who Jesus Christ is. Less than 1%. But let's go back to where we began. When we first started in Peru in 1981, there were about six alliance churches in the city of Lima. Things were happening. It was growing. And they needed all hands on deck. So we got moved. We were originally assigned to Chile, and but halfway through our studies and preparation, they said, would you be willing to change and go to Peru? We said, why? They said, we just need more hands. Things are starting to happen in Peru. There were six alliance churches in the city of Lima at that time. The city of Lima was probably around uh, 6,000 people, or 6 million people, sorry, 6 million people. Um, over the years, as we watched God work, when we left, there were 60 alliance churches in the city of Lima. Just in the city of Lima, not in the outskirts, not in the big in the big cities to the north or to the south, 
not in the ones that were in the Amazon or in the high mountains. This was just the city of Lima. 60 Alliance churches. Now you might think, okay, Alliance churches. You, you have a house church and that's called a church. Mm -mm. They put regulations on it. The national church was very strong at that time. They put regulations on what you could call a church. You had to have 150 members, not adherents, not just people who came on Sunday morning, but people who were actually identified with that church and became members. There had to be 150 before you were allowed to be called a church. So 60, some of those churches seated more than 2,000 people. One church, the first one we ever attended, when we first arrived, they were already growing to such an extent they had, a seat, they had seating for 1,200 people in their sanctuary. And the first event that we went to was a Thursday evening service in the church. And I remember the excitement. We sat in the what we thought were the last two seats in the pew, third row from the back. And in no time flat, the usher came and said, could you move in a little bit? Well, we kind of shoved over a little bit. And two more people came in beside us. A few minutes later, it was, could you please move in a little bit? Well, we as North Americans were still a little, you know, social distance was just a little bit, you know, we don't quite get too close when we talk to each other, especially now, but even before COVID. Um, and so we moved in a little bit farther. By the time the service started, we were, and, and this is the back, we're not in the front of the, of the church, we're right at the back, Everything was full, and we were now almost in the middle of the row. One person would seat, sit forward on the bench and one person behind so that their shoulders would overlap and their hips would not get in the way so that they could get more people in. We realized why God had called us there. This was an exciting time to be in Lima. Fast forward over the years, and we realized now all of the churches, not one church had a missionary as a pastor. We might be on the pastoral team, but only as under the senior pastor who is Peruvian. And then, well, we attended the churches, but we were still teaching in the Bible seminary. And then, pretty soon, it was, we don't need you in the Bible seminary. We now have a director who's got his doctorate. We now have profs that have their master's degrees. And you know when you build a church, you put up a scaffolding? And once the church is finished, if you leave the scaffolding there, it looks ugly. You've got to take the scaffolding down. We as missionaries were the scaffolding. We were the ones to help build 
the national church. And the national church is strong. We weren't needed there anymore. So we went to Mexico. Mexico wasn't a good fit. As you'll find out, Ernie's a preacher teacher. They were still at the beginning stages of going out and sitting in parks, in cafes, getting to know people, starting from the ground up with small churches. And those who were in leadership and Mexican, because Ernie was getting his doctorate in preaching, were a little intimidated when he got in the pulpit. And we said, you know what? We're not going to be a help here. We're going to be a hindrance. We need to leave. So we came home to Canada and pastored a church in Belleville, Ontario for seven years. But my little girl heart, who, had asked, who Jesus had called to missions when I was five years old, said, I think we still have one more place to go. And we were called to Spain. And at first we thought, the Alliance has an, a, a sort of a focus on least reached people groups where less than 2% are evangelical or have even heard of the gospel. And we thought, Spain? But when we got there, we realized just how dark Spain is. We helped with a children's camp where we were not allowed to say the name of Jesus, even though it was a Bible camp run by missionaries. If we spoke the name of Jesus, we would be shut down. Our only door to be able to reach those kids was to be able to visit the families and in front of the parents speak the name of Jesus. But in the camp, we were not allowed to say Jesus' name. Well, when we got to Spain, Ernie had taught in the seminary in Peru. And when we got to Spain, who did we work under? One of his students who had been called as a missionary from Peru to Spain. And we were able to work in the Bible seminary there. In fact, Ernie just taught a course on Zoom, four hours a day, five days, all week last week, in Madrid, in that seminary, in Spanish. He's exhausted. <laughs> but you know, the Peruvians have been called to places all over the world. And they are missionaries. This missionary couple is now working in a place called Bethany School. And they, at first, he was the director of the seminary, but he stepped back from that and said, we need to recapture the young people. So the 13 to 18-year-olds go to Bethany School in the summertime. In the winter, they've just started a one-year Bible college or Bible school that is like a gap year, like a Cape and Ray for the Spanish immigrant kids, mostly from Latin America, but a few Spaniards are coming and they're starting to really have a, an influence on the Spanish, Spain, Spanish people in Spain. God is using 
his people from Latin America and the reason that we left is evident as we see them reaching Europe, reaching the Middle East, and reaching North Africa for Christ. Thank you. When God identifies himself in the Old Testament, he identifies himself as I am. And when he wants to expound and explain further who he is, he says, I am who I am. And when Moses was asked by God to go on a mission, he was uncertain that the people would believe him and follow him. And so he asked God, when the people ask me, who sent you? What do I tell them? Who sent me? And God says, tell them, I am who I am. Our authority is rooted in our identity in God. My message this morning focuses in on Jesus and one of his claims to identify himself with the I am of the Old Testament. We want specifically to look at the Gospel of John, chapter 8 and verse 12. The text will be up on your screen or you can check out in your Bibles. John, chapter 8 and verse 12. One of the most profound expressions of identity that Jesus gave to us about himself is this expression, I am the light of the world. What a profound statement. Perhaps we've become too familiar with it. And I hope that as I speak, the Holy Spirit would illuminate us to appreciate its significance. There are actually several places within John's Gospel where we see this reference to Jesus as light. Here are a couple of references on the screen found in John chapter 1 and verse 5, and I've put two different versions of that verse on the screen for you. The Amplified Version says, The light shines on in the darkness, and the darkness does not understand it or overpower it, or appropriate it or absorb it, and is unreceptive to it. Now that's vintage Amplified Version, there's no doubt about it. Another version, the, the Good News New Testament, says the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has never put it out. Where does this image of light come from? When the evangelist John sat down and, guided by the Holy Spirit, decided to write the gospel, and when he starts with this reference to the light, What's in his mind? When we work in the area of academics, we always try and explore what's behind the text, what's nurturing the text, what's feeding the text, what's in the mind of the author. Try and understand the original references. And undoubtedly, John, as a follower of Jesus, as a Jew, is nurtured, is informed by the Old Testament. His understanding of the Old Testament and the references to the Messiah as light 
the true Israel as light. Undoubtedly, these concepts informed his understanding. But I also believe that John was aware of the literature in his time. And he was especially interested in reaching not just the Jews, but the Gentile people. And so undoubtedly, he used allusions and references to literature that the Gentiles, the world, the secular people would undoubtedly be familiar with. I suspect that Plato's cave was a part of the uh, evangelist John's thinking. You may say, now just a minute, Plato's cave, you lost me there. <laughs> what on earth is Plato's cave? So, <clears throat> the next time you're in a spa, think of Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle. <laughs> okay? Socrates was the first teacher. He had a student called Plato, and he had a student called Aristotle. Plato is the primary writer. His most important book is called The Republic. It's an analysis of politics and religion. And he wrote in Socrates' name, his teacher, out of respect. Now, let's look carefully at the allegory that Plato uses in reference to the light. And I'm going to try and break this down a little bit. In fact, it might be helpful. I don't know if we can control the lights so that we can see more visibly the screen. If not, let's try and go through this. Socrates describes prisoners chained to a wall in a cave, forced to look at shadows on the wall. They have no frame of reference, and so the prisoners do you see the prisoners there leaning up against the wall? There they are, looking up at these images. And they believe that those images are real life. Little do they know that behind these prisoners, there is a fire. And there's these people parading behind the wall, holding up images, that project their shadow up against the wall. Do you see that? Take a good, close look. Behind these people and out above the surface is the sun and the outside world. And in the allegory, a prisoner escapes and discovers that what he's been looking at all the time is just a shadow. It's not the real world. And then he discovers these people manipulating objects to create this image of reality when it's all a show. And then this prisoner goes even further, and he escapes out of this cave, and he begins to discover the real world with the sun out there. And it's a real awakening. In the allegory, the prisoners represent society. Most people are comfortable believing that which they can see in front of them. Think of your TV. <laughs> and not wonder about the elements beyond that. 
The prisoner who escapes represents those attempting to understand how the world really works and not to be controlled by social media and the people that are casting images that we think represents true reality. Finally, breaking out and discovering the sun. The sun represents pure fact, absolute truth. Without the light of the gospel, we live in a shadowland of mythology, divorced from reality. But when we move into the light, we not only see the light, but we see everything that the light illumines, and we get our bearing, we get our orientation. When John refers to Jesus as the light, I suspect that he's thinking about that cave. I don't know if you've ever thought about that, but I want you to think about that now. But something else. Jesus not only said, I am the light of the world, he said something else very radical. You are the light of the world. Now, on the surface, this appears almost to be blasphemous to put these two truths together. How can Jesus say on the one hand, I am the light of the world, and then turn around and say, you are the light of the world? And I want us to explore because I think that this dynamic has a key component of the meaning of, miss of missions. In Philippians chapter 2 and verse 7, the Apostle Paul echoes these words of Jesus. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent, children of God, above reproach, in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you appear as lights in the world. I don't know about you. I've got two boys, both married, and one of our boys and his wife, they have two boys. Two grandsons. We were hoping to leave today and drive down south and visit them because they live in Newman Lake in Washington, but the border is still shut. <laughs> so we're hoping for July 21. <laughs> you can pray about that. When I think about our boys and I think about our grandkids and I think about the world that they grow up in, what they're being taught in school, do I have your attention? It's a dark world out there, folks. And kudos to parents and grandparents that bring up their children in the light of the truth of the gospel and that they have enough criteria to understand the difference between darkness and light. We're the light of the world. We shine in a dark place. We're not supposed to hide our light under a bushel. No. Some of you kids wonder, although farming communities understand what a bushel is, but I think it's a different idea. <laughs> we need to understand the concept of light. We're called not only to reflect 
the light of Jesus Christ, but to refract the light of Christ. Do you know what the concept of refraction means? All right, some of you have studied a little bit of elementary science and concepts of light. Notice the elements of the diagram. The individual and the church, as a collective unit, is like a prism set in the world. The light of God, by his word, by his spirit, is like a beam. This light passes through the prism of your personality, both individually and corporately. Every individual reflects and refracts the light of Jesus Christ in a unique way. When your pastor preaches, he preaches different than the way I preach. And yet we preach the truth of the Word of God. But I have a different personality, and so do you. And the way Christ manifests himself through you is different than the way he manifests himself through me. And churches have a unique personality. And Christ celebrates that. The light of the gospel is refracted through the prism of the individual and the church. And the display, the refracted light, puts on display the beauty of the truth in its many forms to the world. Christ and his gospel, Christ and the cross are absolutely central and essential to our message. Paul said, I preach Christ and him crucified. Our message is Christocentric and crucentric. We preach the word, and the word exalts the person of Jesus Christ. And we do that not just as preachers, but in our own way, with our own gifts and personalities. All of us are called to have an influence, to be salt and light in a dark place. And some of us are called to leave our cultures and communicate the gospel in a different, different culture. Jesus and the church are the light. Both truths are right. Jesus is the light of the world, but we are the light of the world. How does this work? And with this, I want to conclude. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Paul said, I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Christ lives in me. Notice the individual. The individual Christian, in this case Paul, confessing Christ living in me as an individual. But there's also the collective element in Colossians chapter 1 and verse 27. To whom God will to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among you, the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, plural. 
the hope of glory. Christ in you. God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. He is the one we proclaim, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone fully mature in Christ. To this end, I strenuously contend with all the energy Christ so powerfully works in me. Christ is the light of the world, but you are the light of the world. And when Christ comes into our lives, what people want and need to see is him. And the ability to be salt and light is not in ourselves. To exalt Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, therefore... In his power, while demonstrating his love, we will reach, teach, and equip people to know, love, and serve him. Here and beyond. Christ in you. The ability to be light. He is the light of the world. But as he lives in us, and as we discover that dynamic of the fullness of Christ in and through us, we become light in a dark place. We've tried to live that life for the past 45 years as a married couple. And this year we're retiring officially. Who's going to take our place? Maybe somebody sitting here. Some child, some young adult, some young person. Jesus is the light, but you too are the light. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for these truths. Thank you for the dynamic Christ in you, the hope of glory. Empower us and enable us to live the gospel, to demonstrate the light, to reflect and to refract the light of Jesus Christ. May he be glorified in Jesus' name. Amen.